Well, you have your Bibles, so I want you to get to the book of 1 Corinthians. And I will not uh, have enough weeks to get every verse in this letter, but I think we'll be able to get enough of it that you'll get a, a pretty good grasp upon this book of the Bible. I made uh, on Wednesdays uh, begin to fill in some of the places we don't get to cover on Sunday. So maybe if you come on Wednesday night, uh, I'll try to get the other part of it. And I want to say uh, thank you to the blacks. I enjoy that people use their artistic ability to serve the Lord. Um, working with Dan, uh, he sometimes will say, Pastor, how do you think that's going to look? And my response is this, Dan, you're the artist, I'm the mechanic. You just make it look good and I'll drive it home, okay? So that's how we work together. So I appreciate it so much. It's what a blessing it is to have people use their abilities for the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to talk about the greatness of grace. This church in Corinth, it consisted of people who had been saved out of all kinds of backgrounds. They had done some things that would make your grandmother blush. This city was filled with wickedness, immorality, greed, idolatry, prostitution, everything that you could imagine. The city of Corinth had it. I was uh, on a mission trip one time and we were in the Ukraine and me and two of the preacher boys, we were coming back and we stopped in, uh, in Holland on the way back and to you know, stay the night. And so uh, two of them said, uh, Let's go, let's go to Amsterdam and, and just see it. Okay, so we go. It's in the middle of the night. We got off the train. Our feet hit the sidewalk. And Philip said to me, Brothers, this place is Corinth. Let's get back on the train. And that was it. And so just an awful place. And Corinth is like that. To be Corinthianized meant that you had gone over the edge. It was just a bad place as far as morality and the things of God now in this culture but from this culture God had chosen to save some I think the apostle Paul had some hesitancy about even going into this city and God told him ahead of time I have many people there even before anyone had come to Jesus and so God had intended to save people from that place now Corinth is also a place and this doesn't appeal to us very much but it was a place where discussing philosophy was a pastime. And the art of rhetoric was highly prized. People would go just to hear people make speeches. Can you imagine that? Paul was here about a year and a half. And then he was followed by Apollos. And Apollos preached there for about another year to establish this church. But this church, because of the background of these folks, it had a lot of problems. The church, as you read 1 Corinthians, you realize they fought immorality inside the church. There was infighting. There was heresy. There was greed. There were all kinds of divisions. There were preacher cults. It was a mess. There were a lot of sins that needed to be sifted out of the lives of these folks who are following Jesus. Don't worry about Corinth. The church is in terrible shape. So how does Paul begin this letter? He gives them a greeting in verses 1 through 3. But we're going to be looking down in verse 4. And so with a church like this. 
how does Paul start this letter? He starts it with thanks. He says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. I tell people in the doorway class, if you can't thank God for this church, don't join it. If you can't be thankful for your church, find one where you can be thankful. We need to be thankful no matter what the problems are. Do we have a group of believers that we can get together with and we can worship the Lord Jesus? We should be thankful. And Paul starts with thanksgiving. Now, specifically, what is he thanking God for about them? He says it in verse 4, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, grace. Let, let's talk about grace for just a moment. We, we all understand, I think here, we understand the concept of grace as an attitude. That God is favorably disposed towards sinners for no apparent reason except that he just is. There's nothing in us that would elicit kindness from him. Grace is God's kindness coming from his nature towards sinners. So that is the attitude of grace. And that is, obviously, the attitude precedes the kind of grace that Paul's talking about here. But what Paul's talking about in this letter at this point is not just God being favorably disposed toward the Corinthians. He's talking about not just the attitude of grace, but he's talking about the activity of grace. Grace is a power. Grace is a force. It is an active agent in the lives of Christians. And he's talking about that active agent that God has placed in them that is at work. It's something that God is doing not because they earned it, not because of anything in them that deserves it, but simply because God has chosen by His kindness when He saves us not to leave us like we are. God's reason for saving us is not just to get us to heaven. His reason for saving us is to conform us to the image of His Son, to make us like Jesus. And so it is that grace at work in us, that gracious activity of God that is working and transforming. And so Paul here is being thankful because he knows God is at work. These people will not always be like they are. That God will bring them to the goal. He will bring them to completion. I always say that sanctification is imperfectly pursuing perfection. And here's the thing, we can never obtain it because we imperfectly pursue it, but yet God will bring us to that point in his own way. Not on this earth, <laughs> but in, in, the world, in the world to come. But we are to imperfectly pursue that perfection, and God's grace is at work changing us as we pursue it. Because we could say to ourselves, if we can't reach it, why try? Because in the trying is where God is working and changing and transforming us. God can't, he can't drive a boat that stays in the dock. You, you got to get after it, you got to pursue it. But in that, that's the, the place where God's grace, his activity and power begin to work. 
and transform us. And so this is why Paul's thankful. And he's excited about this church, even though no pastor in his right mind would ever go to Corinth and pastor that thing. No, no, if somebody said, well, brother, I, I got a church I want to share your resume with. And he said, not that church, you're not. This is God's grace at work. And so here's, the, here's just three, three elements and three ideas here about God's grace. Three facts about it. Uh, about his, his active grace in the lives of Christians. First of all, it is an enriching grace. And let's read verses 4 through 6. I give thanks to my God always, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you're enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, you see how smart I am. The first point is it's enriching grace. I wonder where I got that idea. Use the Bible, brothers. It will help you in your preaching. Enriching grace. Now, what is the source of this grace, this active agent of God that that we don't deserve having work in us to transform us into the likeness of Christ, that God is doing it out of his own kindness, What is the source of it? Well, he tells us, in Christ Jesus. In Christ means to be in union, in union with him. It's that mystical union that you have with Jesus. His spirit welded to your soul. And it happens when you trust upon him as Lord and Savior. You are now unified, not not just in thought or theory, but in reality. So that's why we can say that if Christ died, then we died with him. If he rose, then we rose with him. If he is seated in the heavenlies, then we're seated with him. How can that be? Because we are in union with him. And it is a real thing. It's not just philosophical. It's not theoretical. It's real. And so we are in union with him. When we're born again, that union takes place. The spirit of Jesus joins himself to your soul. And your soul is joined to him. Now then, what happens is the powers that are communicable. Do you know what something is a, is a communicable disease, don't you? You can pass it on. Well, there are powers, there are strengths, there are attributes of God that are communicable. Now, there's some that are not. We can't catch them. But there are some that are. And this power is, is infused into you at the pace in the volume of the amount according to God's wisdom and purpose. This gracious power is given to you as you seek to live for Him. You're not living for Him by just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, and making yourself follow Jesus. It is His grace at work in you. Now, apart from the grace of God, if I were to take a poll for Fox News, how many of you want to go to church? Nobody would want to. There's no reason for it. I mean, who in their right mind wants to come and hear a hillbilly talk about the Bible? Right? So, you know, but the grace of God is at work in you. And that power at work in you is saying you need more fuel. You you need more food. You, You need this so that you can grow. And so that's motivating you. I've never been one uh, big on attendance campaigns and those kind of things. Uh, you know, I, I, in my early years, I did some of that stuff, you know, and you, you, you work yourself to death and you get a church house full and the next Sunday it's worse than it was. And, and you know what, I, what you find out is the grace of God is what has to draw people. 
I mean, unless I'm going to have a clown show every week and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it's the grace of God that does it. And I think we've built a lot of churches in America based upon marketing techniques and a lot of other things. And we have gathered large groups of people sometimes in those situations. And there becomes this kind of thing of like it's the place to be maybe. And so it seems to be fairly well going. But you know what? It's not the grace of God. It's, it's human works that's doing it. And we have to be really careful that, to, to not fool ourselves into thinking we've got something here. We've tricked people into coming. Now we're going to switch over and give them Jesus real quick. That's not the grace of God at work. But the grace of God is at work in the life of a believer. It's by His grace that you serve Him. It's by His grace that you love Jesus more and more. It's by this grace power that flows from your union from Jesus with your union through your union with Him. And it's His grace that does this in our lives. It's His grace that causes us to overcome sin. It's His grace that causes us to seek Him out and to seek Him more and more and more. It's God working in us. By His kindness, He's using His power to change us. And the source of that is your union with Jesus. And if you're not united with Jesus in that way, if you haven't been welded to Him by being born again, then that's not going to happen in your life. What are the signs of enriching grace? It's interesting what he tells us here. The apostle tells us there, there are two signs here. Now, these are not the only ones, but for the Corinthians, he wants to point these two out. He says in verse 5, Every way you were enriched in him, again, union in Jesus, in what ways? In all speech and all knowledge. It's, it's interesting he picks these two things because if you remember all the way back when I started this sermon some two hours ago, I said for the, for the Corinthians, there were a couple of pastimes, there were a couple of things that people admired about others. And it was their, their wisdom, their ability, their, their philosophy. And you could sit around and talk through those things. And so people that had that kind of head knowledge were highly regarded. And then the other one was this, the ability to, to make speeches and to use argument and, and di- uh, formulate a, a speech in a way that it would cause the audience to be impressed. And so these were, high, I know it sounds weird to us, but for them, that was the thing. And so here's what Paul is saying to you. Guess what? You got those things. You have been enriched in your speaking, in all speech. Your neighbors are out there attending these, uh, these, these, these speeches today. And to go hear these people with these elaborate uh, oratory skills. And guess what? You have a skill. You have this, the ability to speak that God has given to you. And this is an ability given by God's grace at work. And so what is it that you're going to speak about? Well, that's the knowledge part. In all knowledge. What knowledge? You have the ability by God's grace to be able to speak and to be able to speak convincingly about a certain body of knowledge that the rest of the world knows nothing about. You are able to speak about the mystery of the gospel. The rest of the world out there, they're talking about stuff, but it doesn't matter. For eternity, it makes no difference. They're like babbling children out there compared to what you now have in Christ. You want to be impressed? Don't be impressed by those out there who have all of the knowledge and all the ability to be able to speak convincingly and persuade people. 
Don't be, he's saying to them, don't be, you have something that's superior to that. You have the ability to speak about Jesus. And no one can top that subject matter. And so he's saying, this is what you have by the grace of God. Don't be impressed by them. It's interesting how all these years of being a pastor, when you're out in the world, you're considered the dumbest person in the room because you're a pastor. They think that we are kind of um, deluded by superstition. And, and it's almost like they, they think that we think Winnie the Pooh is real. That, that we just, I know Randy's, Randy just was crushed by that comment. I'm sorry, Randy, I, I didn't mean to let the cat out of the bag, but yes, Pooh's not real. And so, you know, they, they think that we are just um, believers in some kind of like fables and fairy tales kind of thing. I mean, we're, we're just a step away from, you know, Walt Disney. And it's entertaining and it's, it's nice for the community. It's good. But as far as being in touch with anything of, of any kind of knowledge or intelligence, we would not be the go-to person. Even church members treat you that way. So they're like, well, you know, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Oz said, Dr. Oz doesn't know about Jesus. It's It's crazy. Um, I, I remember teaching a school system one time and a woman making fun of, you know, uh, seminary education. And I, oh, ma'am, I'm two languages in. How many you got? We, we have, it, it, it doesn't matter if you're here today and, and you're on a third grade reading level. You just never really did excel in school. You still have. In your possession, the highest knowledge of the universe, if you know Jesus. And so that's what he's telling them. And God's grace has granted that to you. He's picked you people out of the midst of all of them. He picked you to grant this to you. It's an enriching grace. I could talk about that a lot more, but I probably should move on. Let's talk about grace in this way. God's grace is not only an enriching grace, but it is an enabling grace as well. Verse 7 says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This enabling grace, I've been talking about it, is, it is a power. But it, it, it's a power for the work. You're, you're not lacking in any gift, he says. The result of being enriched by God's grace at work in your life, is that these folks are enabled by that grace. They're given gifts. And these gifts are ministry tools. The word gift here, uh, gifts, plural, would be charismata, which is a cousin to the word grace, charis. They go together. These gifts are, Paul is saying, they're gracious gifts. They're unearned gifts. There's no hint here of them earning them in any way. They're not a spiritual reward for being holy. In fact, the fact that they're gifts, it would preclude it being earned or in, in any way as a reward. And the purpose of the gifts, we'll find out later, is to build up the church. It's to build up the church in health and in strength. 
And the question for each of us would be this. Are we using our spiritual gifts for the sake of the church? Are we doing that? As we serve, God's gracious power will be at work. And that power will enable you to be able to carry that out effectively. If you'll trust in him and trust in his power. Not only that, you have to trust that his grace at work in you is causing what you're doing to have the desired effect upon the people that are benefiting from your grace. The, the grace of God that's at work in you. And Matt's up here singing a minute ago. It, it, it's an act of faith to, to get up here and sing these songs. It's an act of faith. He has to trust that God's gracious work is at work in our hearts, transforming us just a little bit further through the songs that he's singing. He has no way of measuring it. You know, it would be good if we had like one of those meat temperatures, you know, the kind you stick in the meat. We just stick in everybody's heart when they leave. Let's see here. You know, whoop, a little cold, get back in there. And so it would be nice, but we, we can't do that. We just have to trust that God's grace is at work. Now, this grace is power for the work, also persistence. He talks about waiting. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word wait there is really a compound word. And it means like eagerly await. You're waiting with eagerness. This same word used in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await eagerly a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is here trying to motivate them and say to them, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is returning. Don't lose sight of that fact. Because when he comes, he expects to see you having been transformed and looking a lot different from the way you look right now. He expects you to have grown in your love for him and your life to be transformed. And some of the sins that have been your habit throughout your life have been sifted off. They've been flushed away by his work in you. And so look for him to come and return. But when he returns, he expects to see the product looking a little bit better than when he first fished it out of the cesspool. So the fact of Jesus and his imminent return, does that move you? Does it make you think it could be today? It, it just very well could be today. And if, if Jesus were to come today, would he be satisfied with the progress that he's made in my life? Or have I fought him the whole way? Have I just dragged my feet? Have I made it such a chore that I'm still basically a child in my faith? Or am I growing up into maturity because I'm trusting in his grace at work in me and I'm cooperating with that? There are means that he gives us. Gathering together for worship is one of the ways he, he works by his grace in our lives. Reading the scriptures on your own at home is one of the ways. Hearing the preached word is another way. Singing our songs, the spiritual songs to the Lord is another way that he works. The Lord's Supper, the baptism, he works. The fellowship of the saints, he works. Those are avenues for that active grace to come into your life. But you have to avail yourself of the means. You have to concentrate. You have to work at it. And when you do... It's not you growing yourself up in the faith. It's the grace of God that is actively at work in you because you decided to get connected up to it. The return of Jesus should cause us to pursue our transformation 
with diligence and urgency. And you've heard me say before, when my sister and I would get in an argument when I was a kid, my mom would say, you know, what if Jesus returned and saw you treating your sister like that? In my mind, I was thinking to myself, I know where I'm going. I'm not sure where she is. <laughs> the fact of the imminent return of Jesus, it should move us. Now, we've we got to move on. I'm already into overtime. I'm going to go for two-point conversion. Here we go. So this grace is not only enriching and enabling, but it's also enduring. In verse 8 and 9, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This enduring grace, it does a couple of things for our hearts. We see in verse 8, the serenity that comes from it. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace that comes from that statement. I can't claim guiltlessness before the Lord. Uh, it's just totally the opposite. In and of myself, by my own efforts, my own abilities, I, 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 don't, I can't stand before him guiltless. I, I, I don't have it. I can never be that. I, it's already, hey, that horse is already out of the barn. It's way too late. I, I can't go back and fix it. If I started right now, I'd still mess up. It, it, it's not that it's in me. But what he's talking about here is it, it's God's grace at work. First of all, his grace is going to sustain them. Why do we believe in the perseverance of the saints? Why do we believe in once saved, always saved? Is kind of the popular way to put it. Now, there's some people that claim once saved, always saved, but they haven't got the once done yet. They claim it, but they ain't got it. But why do we say, is it because we're just going to hold on to the end? I mean, that's kind of what the Arminians would say. Their viewpoint would be you kind of decide to save yourself or get saved. You decide and then you just hang on for dear life. You know, man, my grip would have been let go a long time ago. That's not why we believe it. Not because of my ability to hang on to Jesus. We believe it because of his ability to hang on to us. He will sustain you. You go through a time in your life where you feel like you sin more than you breathe. You ever been there? And you think to yourself, I'm not going to be able to hang on. And you can't. You come to the place you realize, and I can't. But God will sustain you. You go through a time in your life of grief, deep grief, and it's dark. And you just can't seem to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You wake up every day, it's just as dark as it was the day before. The rest of the world is going right on. And you're grieving over the loss of someone that you love. What do you do? You think, God, I, I'm not going to be able to make it. I can't, I can't even see which way to go. He will sustain you. He will, you. You've got to trust him. He will sustain you. God, notice that God is the active agent here. He will sustain you to the end, to the very end, all the way to the end. We're going to persevere because God is the one who sustains us by his grace. 
And this grace also doesn't just sustain us. But it is this grace. This grace. That presents us. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, when he returns, your sentence is guiltless. See, this is even beyond pardoned. You could be pardoned and still be guilty. And we are. But God is not going to label us as guilty, but pardoned. He's going to label us pardoned and guiltless. The whole thing. We don't have to go through eternity dragging around the guilt of our sin even though we're not going to hell. We're guiltless before Him. He's conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. This process is not finished. It won't be in this life. But what He's telling us is, He's going to complete it. He's going to finish it. The result is guiltless. No one will be able to accuse you of anything in heaven. The devil is called the accuser of our brothers, the accuser of Christians. And you know, here's the thing about the devil. A lot of times he's right. He doesn't even have to lie to accuse me of stuff. He can just tell the truth. It's bad. But one day, and brothers and sisters, it may be sooner than we think. One day, no one in all of eternity will be able to lay one accusation at my feet. Not one. Why not? Because it will have been cleansed out of me by the grace of God. And painted over with a thick coat of the blood of Jesus. The days for accusations will be over. Enduring grace. We get a lot of peace from this. It's the serenity of but also the certainty of it. And how, how do we know that this is going to happen? How do we know? Because the Bible says in verse 9. God is faithful. Now. I don't, I don't tell you these things to try to impress anybody or try to make you think I'm smart. We already all know that. That's been established. And humble. And I'm going to write a book about how humble I am. Be a bestseller. And I'll tell you how I did it after it's all over with. But you guys know, everybody knows this, that the New Testament was written in Greek. Paul wrote this in Greek. Okay, that was the language of the day. It was like English is for our day now. Back then, it, it, Greek was the, the, the language. And they, in, in Greek, you don't have exclamation points. You, you don't have, they don't underline, they don't italicize. So trying to emphasize something, what they do is they change the order of the wording in the sentence. And normally, if they put a verb or a, sub, a noun first, 
before any kind of conjunction or anything else, they're wanting to emphasize that fact. And so in verse 9, verse 9 starts out with the word faithful. Faithful is God. If, if we were going to translate into English the way that the Greek really means it, we would say something like this. Faithful, faithful, faithful is God. That's what Paul's telling them. How in the world can you count on this? All of this that he's talking about. It, the, these people can look at themselves and they see, I've still got a problem with this. I haven't overcome this sin yet. And I grew up doing this and it's an awful habit. And I keep going back to it. And this sin here and I keep thinking about this. And I can't get rid of that. These people are an absolute mess. And they're a church. And what Paul is telling them is, you're not done yet. This is not how you're always going to be. It is God's grace at work and He will change you. He will transform you and He will get you to the point when you step into eternity, you will be guiltless. And how do we know that fact? Because faithful is God. That's how we know. God unwaveringly supports His people with His grace at work, causing us to endure all the way through, but not just endure. To endure with certainty and serenity and hope and joy. Why? Because we can count on Him. God, if He has drawn you out from the swamp of sin and lostness, brothers and sisters, he intends to bring this thing to completion. Whatever he has designed for you to be, he will bring it to fruition. He is not finished. Until you draw your last breath, he is not done. Paul said it this way. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. The question for us is, is this, and just very simply, as a Christian, what am I trusting for my transformation? What am I trusting to become more and more like Jesus? Am I trusting in the number of Bible studies that I've done this year? Am I trusting in how many times I've gone to church? Am I trusting in I'm just trying real hard to do better? Am I trusting in some kind of you know, mind trick I'm playing on myself to keep myself from sinning? Am I, am I leaning on all the self-help kind of preaching that goes on in our day? How you can do it, you just got to tap into your whatever that is. You know? And so, you know, is that, what do you trust? Here's what Paul's trying to say to them. If you take an honest look at your life and what you really ought to be in Christ, you're probably disappointed. You know good and well that Jesus deserves more from us than what we've given him. He deserves more. He deserves us to be more like him. He deserves that we be transformed, that we be further down the, the, the path than what we are. He deserves that. And it's easy to look at your life and, and be kind of disappointed. It may be that you're at a place in your life where some sin that you got rid of years ago has now uh, reared its ugly head again. And you're so disappointed in yourself. You're like, God, how could I let myself do that again? 
But here's the thing. This, remember this. Trust in his grace to work in you. Because he is faithful. His grace is enriching. It gives us so much. It enables you and it will endure with you. Trust in his grace in your life. That active working of the Holy Spirit of God by God's grace in you. And he will turn you in to the follower of Christ that you always dreamed that you wanted to be. Trust in him. Now, let's back up. Maybe you haven't even started down the path yet. Maybe you're, you're only outside. You're thinking about it. You're like, I'm thinking about following Christ. I'm not really sure about it. I'm not sure. Here, here's what you've got to get first and foremost. If, if you do trust in Jesus, it's all by God's grace that you do. It's by him being kind enough to open your eyes so that you see your need. It's by him being kind enough to send his son to be the savior, to take your sin upon himself on the cross, to endure the wrath of God. It's all by God's grace. It's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of works. And, and even that's not of yourself. Even the, even the faith is not of yourself. It's all by God's grace. Why? So that nobody can brag. So if you're interested in following Jesus, the first thing you've got to get in your mind is this. If I'm allowed to follow him, if God brings me into a place where I start following Jesus, it's not because of me. It's because of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, um, we, we just want to uh, say for just a moment, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for grace. Thank you for being so kind to us when we deserve the very opposite. And thank you that your grace is not just an attitude, but there is action with it. There is power with it that you inflict upon our lives. Lord, we're so thankful and gracious for you being so gracious to us, Lord. I pray, Father, for your children that we each would learn that it is by your grace. If we are growing in Christ, we have no reason to brag. It is your grace that is work in us. It's not ours. When self is at work, it goes the other way. And so, Lord, help us more and more just to be deeply thankful, like Paul was for this church, Lord, that we'd be thankful for our church, but be thankful for our own lives that you're at work by your grace. Lord, I pray for those who are here today that maybe they're still trying to earn it. They're trying to earn their way into your good graces. It's insane. No man can do it. No person can do that. I pray today, Lord, that they would begin to see the treasure of grace that you, Lord, kindly disposed towards sinners and you have made a way through your son that we would be forgiven and not only that that our lives would be open to be changed by you lord i pray your work your gracious work in our hearts this morning in jesus name i pray amen